from the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga, and my guest today is David Hampton. So David Hampton finally told a friend that he was an alcoholic. And years later, he's now an addiction recovery specialist. He's helping people out of the same situation that he'd once been in himself. I first knew David, though, as the worship leader at the church that I attended in college. I'd heard through the grapevine that his wife was not doing well. I didn't realize that she was bedridden for years with MS. And sadly, I had not even heard that she had passed away a few years ago. But truthfully, I probably wouldn't have heard any of this had it not been for the fact that a few of my friends, friends who've undergone the long and incredible task of breaking addiction, who started telling me about this amazing man who'd been guiding them into a life of sobriety. And once I connected the dots and realized that this was a guy I at least knew a little bit, I just, I knew I had to talk to him. So in the meantime, between reaching out to him and us actually sitting down, I discovered that he has his own podcast called Positive Sobriety, and I've listened through maybe a dozen episodes, just one after another. It is great. The co-host of that podcast, a guy named Nate Larkin, is actually going to be our guest next week, and I couldn't be more excited. Here is why. I mentioned recently that I've been wanting to use this podcast to do more than just share stories, but to also equip and resource people who are finding this podcast because they need something they're not finding closer to home. And of the most important changes that we can ever make, and one of the few that we can actually decide to make, is to get healthy. And quite possibly, that means to get sober. Both David's story today, which is amazing, and Nate's next week, involve the long, painful, and incredibly rewarding path of sobriety. And they have not just gotten clean and gone back to their old life, but they now work actively to guide and serve others along that path. That might mean you. In more than a few ways, that has definitely meant me. Because here's the deal, whether it's drugs or drinking or sex or Netflix or work or Instagram or even the way that we think about our families or the way you think about your girlfriend, we all deal with addiction at some level. And by that I mean we all choose to go places with our hearts and our minds and our time that aren't healthy for us. We go there to escape and to numb out and at first it works, but then we go back again and again and then we don't know how to stop. You guys are smart. You know how addiction works. But the point is, whether or not you have a drinking problem, learning about addiction and taking an honest inventory of your own life in that regard is never a bad idea. After these two conversations, the one you'll hear today with David and the one next week with Nate, I've just been living deep in these questions, and I'm really thankful. I think you will be too. It should be said as well that discussions of this nature tend to have subject matter and language that's not well-suited for younger listeners. So just a heads up, if you're listening in the minivan, um, this might not be the one. Uh, but it is great. And the way he communicates about uh, both his past and what he's learned and what he's doing now, I mean, it is inspiring. And uh, I know you guys are just going to love it. But before I introduce you to David, I'd like to introduce you to Olive. My name is Olive Aneinu. I'm from Wachwini, a small town in Kitkum district, Uganda. When the Lord's Resistance Army came to our homestead, I was very scared. We heard that they had begun burning homes in the next villages. We knew that we couldn't stay in the huts anymore. 
I felt very helpless most of the time, hiding from town to town and sleeping in the forest and walking long distances with no shoes. My grandfather keeping on saying, you got to hold on, you got to hold on. God will never change. He's still God. I felt betrayed because the Lord's Resistance Army were composed of people that you saw in the community, children that you knew, some of them you grew up with. And here are the same people who come in the villages and they're the same ones who are killing and butchering people. I just could not understand it. I felt like I was losing everything. Things changed for us when I became involved in the Compassion Program. It was my refuge. Through the Compassion Program, I was able to get my first pair of shoes, get a mattress to sleep on, get the best medical care that I needed. This was after she suffered from tuberculosis. And then she was able to go to school. And all that started because someone believed in me. My life has changed only because someone believed that they could make a difference, that they could release a child from poverty. And I'm here only because Christ lives in me and Christ worked through my sponsors to transform me and to heal me. Compassion made it possible for me to be where I am today by giving me hope. Olive is a social worker right now in Georgia. I work with a lot of children that have uh, severe and emotional behaviors. It's a challenge, but looking back at the experiences that I've gone through, I look back and say, this was what I was meant to do. My name is Olive Aneno, and I am a life changed. Friends, you too can help change a life just like Olive's. Sponsorship with Compassion costs $38 a month. That's like a month's worth of gas in a Prius. So a couple things about Compassion. Compassion are 100% Christ-centered. Their projects are facilitated through and only through the local church. They've got over 7,500 of these church projects worldwide, and each project is operated by local staff that share the language and culture of the children there. Sponsorships are one-to-one. That means that your sponsorship dollars go directly for the care of the specific child you sponsor, like Olive. They take a holistic approach to child development. That means they believe in meeting the physical needs, the mental needs, the emotional, educational, medical, and spiritual needs of each child. You and your child can write letters back and forth, and those words can be life-changing. You, Pivot Listener, you can do this for a child. Please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot for more information. And please do use that link. Compassion is partnering with us to help bring you The Pivot. And when you visit through that link... Compassion.com slash The Pivot. It helps the podcast, and far, far more importantly, it helps to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. Please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot and sponsor a child today. And now, my conversation with David Hampton. I reached out to you because I've had a few conversations in the last couple months with people that I really love who have been spending a lot of time with you recently mm-hmm. in your work. Mm-hmm. And I've seen very markedly like the effects that, that the work that you're doing with them has been changing their lives. Oh, wow. And I'll, I can tell you more about that when we're not being recorded. But <laughs> um, I just thought, man, I, I've kind of known you from afar, from a different season of both of our lives. Right. And I'm so fascinated both in how you got to be doing what you're doing and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after we after we uh, scheduled this, I started digging into your podcast and became a little obsessive. So I'll probably <laughs> ask you about that a little bit too. Um, 
Well, I'd love to just know how, when I first knew about you, it was because I was going to Christ Community Church when I was in college. Right. Uh, here in the late 90s. Yeah. And you were the worship leader. Right. Um, but that's not how you started in Nashville, right? Right. I came to Nashville in, and man, this is going to all start making me feel incredibly old, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it is what it is. I came to Nashville uh, in 87. Okay. And I went to Ball State University when I yeah. went to college um, for the 15 minutes I went. And <laughs> um, we won't go into that, but um, I had three piano performance scholarships and I was going to study piano performance and realized very quickly that uh, I didn't find that to be the most marketable degree in the world. And mm. I didn't know what I would do with it. And I knew I didn't want to teach piano on a college level. So my options there were really limited. So yeah, toyed with changing majors and doing all kinds of things and ended up uh, having a professor that said, if this is what you want to pursue, songwriting and performing, you should just go out and do it. And I went, oh, well, that's not a bad idea. I think it sounds I will. cheaper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wish my parents had seen it that way, but that's a, again another conversation. But uh, so anyway, I went back to my hometown and started writing songs. Which but is I had, where uh, Evansville, Indiana. Okay, grew up in the southern tip of Indiana, and uh, but I had made a lot of contacts up at um, Gaither Music and Alexandria people while I was at school because I would go over and play on. They had a studio there, and I'd go over and play on things, and I would. Uh, I was part of a group that made a custom album there. And I met Mark Gershmel from Whiteheart uh, yeah, yeah. there. He was actually playing trombone uh, for the Gaithers because he was a, a music major at Ball State as well. And uh, that's the first time I ever I met Mark. And, um, you know, I, I was meeting these people and I was meeting publishing people. So I had a place to send my music and um, eventually when they opened up this subsidiary, they said, you should probably go down to Nashville because it's closer and there's more going on down there. We're really going to focus our energy there on new writers, young writers, and, uh, kind of see what, you know, what's happening. So, uh, my wife and I moved to Nashville, uh, in 87 and then, um, in 89, we had our daughter. And for the first five years I was in Nashville, uh, with my lucrative writing deal, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I uh, was waiting tables on the General Jackson. No, I wasn't even... A, the, the boat. A, the boat, yeah, at Opryland. I've never been on the boat. Oh, oh well, for years you, I've... You know, you've got to do that sometime. experience at one time. <laughs> um, it's just, a, you know, to work on it, it's like, you know, it's just an experience. You know, you're, you're a musician and you're not even working as a musician. You're slinging prime rib, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, I, were, I sold furniture. I, you know, did all these, you know, usual stuff that you do when you get here. And But in the process of all that, I met a lot of people and my songs started to find a home and things like that. And, um, and I ended up traveling with uh, some artists and playing keys, playing piano. So about 1994, um, Christ Community realized they needed a full-time person to kind of get their arms around what was going on there with music and worship and all that. Yeah. And uh, Trisha and I had been going there for, you know, a few years by that time. And I knew a lot of people I'd been playing there off and on and uh, helping out and volunteering. And they had a wide talent pool and Scotty Smith. And that was like, they were the zeitgeist, right? That was yeah, like, they were. You know, they were I mean, kind of the only church at that time doing it the way they 
did, you mm. know. Christ Community was really a, it was, and for better or worse, it was known as a CCM church for a long time. Yes, yeah, you know, Chris Chapman was going there. Yeah, and, I remember, yeah. you know, sitting behind people that would have their, they were visiting and they'd have their little, you know, and this was back in the day, but it, their Instamatic cameras. And, you know, they were trying to snag pictures of wow. people. And um, I remember a couple of guys coming in with their copies of CCM that they were hoping, you know, they could snag Amy to sign and, you know, things like that. And so we that was not cool at Christ Community, but 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 that's how you could tell the visitors because <laughs> they didn't know better. Because <laughs> they were wearing their T-shirts <laughs> yeah, from the concert. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And um, but uh, I think all in all, we handled, oh, wow. you know, uh, a place being a safe place for folks to come and just be with their families and and grow and do you know all the things that people do when they come to church and so uh Scotty asked me if I'd kind of get my arms around the talent pool that wasn't just artist driven because mm. we had basically every week it was just we kind of had a different artist lead worship because that he could call them and say, hey, are you in town? Hey, are you in town? Hey, are you in town? Wow. And they would come and they'd lead and Mike Card would lead or Ashley Cleveland would lead or somebody would lead. And um, and then it would be, um, uh, what do we do on the off weeks? You know, mm-hmm. We've got all these talented people that play for different people, but nobody's really getting their arms around that, that group. So yeah. my job initially um, was to um, harness the talent pool. And that coincided really well for me at the time with my personal life because my wife had just been uh, diagnosed with MS. Mm-hmm. And while we were told at that point it was a relapsing, remitting type of MS, um, there are a couple of forms of MS, and most people have this relapsing, remitting that kind of comes and goes, and um, you you deal with it when it flares up, but when it doesn't flare up, you're living a pretty normal life for the most part. Um, and, uh, she eventually started getting into a more progressive state, not Mm -hmm. responding to a lot of the drugs that they wanted to give her and had been giving her and things like that. And, and so I had this, um, how old was your daughter at that time? She was five. Okay. Yeah. She was five by then. And by the time Lauren was probably eight, um, Trisha was no longer driving, you know, because she had an episode where she put her foot on the floorboard and thought it was the brake and she couldn't tell because her feet were numb, um, you know, and went into the bushes of a little office building in downtown Franklin. And um, thankfully, probably like the best possible outcome. Yeah, because I was like, that could have been a stop sign or a stop light, or you could have been a kid on a bike, or you know, I yeah. mean, anything could happen. And of course, she was devastated and upset, and and it was the first of many things that began to be taken away from her, and mm. um, you know that that was hard and hard to watch and experience, and. Um, so I began to be the carpool dad and I'd schedule my day around. Thankfully I had a flexible work schedule and I'd schedule my day around how to get Lauren to school and get home. And then I started working from home, moved my office to our house so that I could be there to, uh, kind of help out a little bit more. And, and in the course of that, um, you know, being Presbyterian, um, we drank <laughs> mm-hmm. and that wasn't a big deal, uh, to the people that I worked with or that I served with or, um, really anything. I mean, not everybody felt the same about alcohol, but for the most part at Christ community, we could, 
safely drink in front of one another. That was not a big issue. Um, and, uh, so growing up Southern Baptist, that was a big issue, yeah. you know? So I grew up with this. Yeah, absolutely. You don't, no one ever in any circumstance drinks, but, yeah. um, I, took my first drink at 13 and realized that that was how God meant for me to feel the rest of my life, you know? Wow. Um, and I knew at 13, that feeling was amazing to me. Mm. I didn't feel anxious, perfectionistic, shame. I didn't feel like I had to please God or that, you know, I, I felt like great. I always say when I go speak that I never understood people praying for peace because Bacardi sells it for nine ninety nine. <laughs> you know it's so, a good line yeah yeah i mean so why you know what's all this praying for peace stuff and um so it just kind of stayed with me for a long time and um and it was manageable and uh but as trisha got sicker i got sicker hmm. as i realized the nature of my job um i got a second writing deal which you know the only you know, the the great thing to do to an addict is reward them with more success, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And uh, so I got a second writing deal, and that was um, at Brentwood Benson. I wrote some songs that I think we had the theme song for Promise Keepers for a couple of years in the 90s. And Wow, that was a big deal. Yeah, it was a, it was a really good thing. And um, and I, I have a song in the United Methodist Hymnal, uh, their last reissue of the hymnal mm. that a worship song made it into. And um, so I always tell people I'm a hymn writer and I'm not even dead. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. There aren't a lot of, yeah, that's so, funny. You man. know, how many people can say that? So uh, good things were happening for me, but um, at home, things were really, really stressful and yeah. they were really painful. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I didn't have a category for it, really. And I was angry, and I didn't acknowledge that. And I was resentful, and I didn't acknowledge that because good Christian people don't get angry and resentful. You know, they muddle through and uh, take the licks that God, you know, sends them and all that stuff. And Yeah, uh, Midwestern, yeah, Southern Baptist. exactly. Yeah, because that nine-year-old Baptist kid still lives in my head and wants to drive. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he really does still believe that he can do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you just give me the keys, I could, I could fix all this with, mm. you know, some good shame and some, you know, good <laughs> solid guilt and a couple of rededications and you'll be fine. So I started drinking a lot. And I started drinking more secretly. I, I the, it wasn't a secret that I drank; it was a secret how much I drank. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I was cooking dinner because Trisha couldn't stand up long enough to, you know, chop an onion. So, I mean, it was really just I was scheduling my world around what needed to happen, and I kind of was on a hamster wheel. And um, so, I drank while I fixed dinner, and I drank during dinner, and I drank after dinner, and. Um, you know, that was only wine. So wine didn't even count for me. Uh, and then about eight o'clock, I would kick into my, you know, rum and diet Coke in my patio tumbler and polish the night off. And so I got into some situations where I was not remembering things very well mm. and I wasn't functioning very well, but I, I was functioning and I could do my job and I wasn't showing up drunk. I just drank really quietly alone at night until I went to sleep or IE passed out. And I'd end up in other rooms of the house that I didn't start out in and not remember how I got there. I'd 
um, had pizza boxes in my bed and don't remember ordering it, paying for it, eating it, but apparently there it was, you know. So that was problematic. (laughs) And um, people in my house were getting really um, sick of me. Hmm. The only hitch was is that we looked really good on paper. Yeah. So I I tried to quit, and I tried this, and I tried that, and I did this, and I did that, and um, and couldn't um, quit. I decided so I quit trying to quit, mm. and so at that point I um, drank every day for five years, wow. and just boom. That takes me up to two thousand five when um, I finally went to my friend Nate Larkin and um, said. Um, I might have a drinking problem, and um, here's what happens. Here's what is starting to happen, and the situations were starting to get really more extreme. You know, I mean, you're, <laughs> you know, I live in a house with two women, and when somebody pees in the floor at night, it's pretty likely that it's not them. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a dog I can blame this on? Yeah, yeah. we didn't even have a, I wish we had had a pet. I really, it would have probably, I, I would have probably gotten another good six months out of my drinking if we had just had a dog. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're trying to explain things like, you know, why you tried to walk into the armoire last night in the bedroom and thought mm-hmm. it was a closet. And, you know, I, it was just ridiculous. So your wife, and, did she know? Oh, yeah, I mean, she, yeah. She watched it. me, but she was kind of, um, powerless in a way because she was so impaired by then yeah. as well. And and she was in bed quite a bit. Um, and then the last seven years we had a hospital bed in our home and she was confined to that um, mm. until she passed away in 2013. But I got sober in 2005 and thankfully, and that was, that was like that, you know, we all have those things before this happened and after this happened in our lives. And I really, um, you know, there are things like before Trisha got sick and after Trisha got sick. But uh, for me, the biggest, I think, change uh, factor happened post-sobriety. And it wasn't what I thought, because I thought, you're going to get sober and you're going to get your act together (laughs) and um, life's going to get better and the people that love you are going to throw you a parade and you're going to be appreciated and your efforts are going to be honored and the harm you've done to people will be miraculously erased and um and you will march on in this beautiful sunset of sobriety into this new life that everybody you know talks about and that's not what i experienced mm. and that was a shock cuz what i experienced was um people resented me um for even being there uh, in the first place, you know, how did mm. you let yourself get there? You know, um, and it's going to take us time to believe you for one thing. You know, you've quit seventy eight other times, so what's seventy nine going to be different? You know, yeah. um, so those were things that were hard to hear. Um, at first, um, my daughter was 15 when I got sober and I think she maybe started liking me again around 18, um, trusting me, you know, mm. cause she had been betrayed too. I lied to her just like mm. I had everybody else. 
And um, are you drinking? No, 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 I'm not drinking, you know, and I'm constantly going out to the garage and she knows, you know, damn good and well what I'm doing because she's not a stupid kid and kids aren't stupid. Mm -hmm. So, so those things were happening, but I was still getting up every day and putting on the face and going to work and putting on the Sunday deal and And being the worship leader at a prominent church. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not 2,000 people's business what I do at night by myself, Mm. you know what I mean? In my kind of soggy, rational mind. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it was. And I, you know, I kind of, I hate the sound of that, you know, when I talk about it because it sounds so duplicitous, which it was. Mm. Yeah. but it was it was just the truth, you know. But I didn't know what else to do. I was watching my wife deteriorate. I was scared. I was angry. I didn't even know I was angry, mm. really. Angry. At God, at her. How do you get angry for somebody for being sick, you know? I mean, how do you, how do you justify being angry at someone for being mm. sick? If she had gotten drunk and wrapped her car around a pole and now she was disabled, I could at least go, God, that was stupid. You know, how do you do that? And but she didn't. She just got sick, and mm. she couldn't help it. And she just got sick. And so I was I was angry. But in sobriety, what happens is, at least for me and a lot of people that I work with now, we wake up, and in a lot of ways, for the first time in our whole lives, and we realize that a lot of things that we've just been experiencing or believing or um, living out are just sort of things that we have parroted, that we've been told, and we just kind of settle for those answers, and those are fine. And I was realizing that the more I got into my program and sobriety and therapy, I went to an addiction therapist for Mm. about three days a week for um, quite a while, Mm. right away after I got sober and kind of an intensive outpatient program that she had helped start. And I realized that I was um, not a very good Presbyterian. (laughs) It took me till I was like, you know, sober a a minute Mm -hmm. to come to that conclusion. And um, I had a lot of questions and, and so but I needed the job, and uh, Trisha needed the benefits, and I didn't want to be the guy that stirred the turd all the time at work, so I just kind of kept things to myself and and um, tried to be as non-confrontational as I could and be in a nine on the Enneagram. I'm Mr. Peacemaker, non-confrontational, all yeah. that. So I started kind of exploring other ideas that I was having, other thoughts about other um, ways of looking at faith and um, God and uh, Christ and what all these things mean and what they mean to me personally. Um, You know, what is a Christian exactly? You know, that kind of thing. I mean, it was that like basic, you know, who is Jesus? I don't know. I, I need I need help figuring that out. So I went up to this monastery. The first year I got sober, and um, uh, there's a little monastery up in southern Indiana called St. Meinrad, and mm-hmm. it's a Benedictine monk, oh, wow. uh, order of Benedictine monks, and they're great. They have these uh, different retreats up there. It's a beautiful spot, 
and they have guided retreats and you can go up and sign up for this guided retreat and kind of just spend some time talking to some of these guys and uh, they give you some things to do and think about and um, and I told Father Bennett, I said, I, I think I'm having a crisis of faith. And he said, well, tell me what that feels like. Tell me what's going on. And uh, he was an older man. And, you know, they all wear the robes and the rope belts. I mean, it's mm, the whole they, deal. They, you know, it. it's like <laughs> it's like Monk Disneyland or something. <laughs> 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 you know, they, they're they all working in different capacities on the mm-hmm. grounds. I mean, it's, just, it's the coolest place. But I was kind of surprised. I felt like I was at sort of a... Um, a theme park. It almost feels like you're on set. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Like central casting was called, and these are the guys that fit the the part. And uh, they make wine in caskets, by the way, which is just really ironic because I thought, well, that might go together. <laughs> like you're there in to my deal world. with my alcoholism. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I might need the casket if I stay with the wine. I don't know, but. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Father Bennett listened to me really politely on the first night. He gave me a lot of things to do, journal and list and things. But he said, you know, you're not having a crisis of faith, I don't think, or you wouldn't be here. Hmm. He said, I think you're losing your illusion of certainty. And that's a very hard place to be. And so I was like, oh, wow. Well, yeah, that's definitely happening. And he said, you know, basically, you know, go with it. Hmm. Just go with it. See what happens. Yeah. You know, ask your questions, have your questions, and deal with things as you are experiencing them. But what you can't afford to do uh, in recovery is pretend you don't feel things or pretend that you don't resent things or pretend that you don't have these emotions. And everything just feels like it's about six inches from your face in early sobriety anyway. Mm. You know, you go... um, into the grocery store and it's just loud. You know, I mean, it's just the fluorescent lights are overbearing. I mean, it's just that kind of thing all the time. People are just a pain in the ass. I mean, it's just that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And yet you realize you actually were the problem and um, they haven't changed. You know, this is you finally experiencing the life everybody else has experienced every day. Hmm. But you've numbed out so much, this is like all new. And so it took a lot of time and a lot of therapy and a lot of work and a lot of spiritual reflection and discipline and changing the way I approached what I thought about prayer and uh, what it meant to be a person of faith and what it meant to be engaged in that. And so I finally uh, began to feel like a human, you know, mm-hmm. after a little while. And um, Trisha passed away. She got very, very advanced and ended up passing away in 2013. Mm-hmm. My, my therapist at the time, who had walked with me through all of my beginning of my sobriety and up to, you know, Trisha's passing, she said, um, before Trisha died, she said, are you prepared for the anxiety you're going to feel when your wife passes away? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> I'm going to be sad and I'm going to grieve. And I've already grieved so much of the loss of the life that we don't have. You know, I thought, I, I would say this all the time. I thought I was on the payhead grief plan, you know, um, mm. Like, um, yeah, I'm kind of grieving this, and yeah, this is sad, and yeah, I'm grieving the loss that we don't have that anymore, or do this. 
And um, I realized, you know, of course, after she died, there's really not any such thing as pay ahead grief or in in the therapy world, we call it anticipatory grief. But it, you still have to grieve, you know. But she asked me, you know, are you prepared for this anxiety? And I said, you know, I am not going to feel anxious. I'm going to feel sad and I'm probably going to feel relieved in some ways. And I'm probably going to have a lot of holes in my day because caregiving is a time consuming deal. But, you know, I'm not going to be anxious. And she's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I don't know how much counseling you've done or anything, but you know, when your, when your therapist nods at you and shows, says, closes okay. their eyes about halfway, <laughs> <laughs> you get the look. Tell me, tell me how that works for you. Uh-huh. Yeah. We'll come back to this in a month. Or, <laughs> I'll just press pause on that. And, uh, so, cause I was just like, I can't imagine that I'd be well, anxious. I, yeah. Um, well, I want to let you finish. I'm curious, anxious about what, but yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, that was it. I was I was curious about anxious about what too, because like, and uh, she. So, what what she said was, she said, "Here is what you may experience. Mm-hmm. Um, everything about your life, uh, to your point of your your theme of your show, sort of everything about your life that you have been either reluctant or unable to change is no longer going to be a factor." Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I can't do this because I need to do that because of Trisha. I can't change jobs because I need to do this because of Trisha. I can't explore going out and being an astronaut because Trisha's sick. You know, I mean, all of that. Um, everything that you have, you have, un- and she said, understandably in many ways, um, had to press pause on. Yeah. Um, is not going to be a, a factor anymore. And, um, you know, Trisha was in hospice care for about six months before she passed. And it was one of those deals where I began to think about that and thought, well, you know, maybe, I don't know. So when she passes away, you know, all of a sudden all my excuses are eliminated. Mm. Like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to continue here and do this? Are you going to move on and do that or would you rather be in this profession or do you want to you know where do you want to spend your time are you going to sell your house or not sell your house i mean you've said you'd like to move but you haven't moved you know i mean just all that stuff and it was suddenly like one day she's here and one day she's not and and it happened about that fast i mean you know we just we woke up one day and she was just not good and things literally did change overnight. I called her hospice nurse about 6 a.m. and just said, I don't think this this isn't, she's not responding to me well. And uh, and he basically said, you know, anybody that wants to see her needs to come today. Hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, she'd been sick for so long. And I said, today? We're not ready, you know? We're, we're not ready. And he's, and he just looked at me and he nodded and, uh, you know, he understood, but he said, we knew this was coming, didn't we? You know? Mm. And um, it was just the craziest moment because it felt like I left my body at that moment and the, everything just hovered and, you know, and then she lingered and passed away about 1030 that night wow. at home, fun. you know? Um, and, and we had probably 65 people in our house that day, you really? know, just coming through, you know, God bless Southerners, you know, bringing food that we could... <laughs> You know, it's a, there's you know like uh, there's no grief that a 
hash brown casserole can't <laughs> fix. <laughs> you know, I, I I joked in my book, I wrote this book called After the Miracle about kind of all this stuff. And I joked that, um, you know, there are Southern families that have done in entire pans of banana pudding at the mere side of a hearse. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> You know, it's just how we are, you know, but but we had people in and they sang to her and loved her and Mm. brushed her hair. And, um, you know, she, she was of course on morphine by then and not conscious, but so after that happened, it was this thing, like everything was different. Yeah. And, and, and after experiencing her passing, being with her in that moment, what that night was like, my daughter and I. Um, just crawling up in bed with her and being with her. How old was she? Uh, my daughter, by the time, uh, was 23. Okay. And was getting ready to move out. She had put a contract on a house. She had been saving money to buy a house, living back at home. And um, so she was going to be moving out in about four weeks, you know, just because that was the timing, you know. And um, so, you know, we're with Tricia and, and she she leaves us, you know, and it was like she had gotten up and walked out of the room. It was the most profound mm-hmm. thing. Um, I knew she was gone. I just knew she was gone. And moving forward, um, I kind of tend to jump right into things because I think if I fix the things logistically, um, mm-hmm. they will um, therefore not hurt. <laughs> how's that how's yeah that work oh that's great yeah and then you have this big hole of time where you get to just sit in your hurt mm-hmm. and think well crap you know this uh i what i've done is i've just given myself absolutely nothing to do you hmm. know i i called and we donated her bed and her medical equipment to a hospice group that took care of her and um they came and got it and then and the hospice uh social worker said we can uh, we can wait till later in the week to come and get this stuff. We don't have to come right away. I said, no, I think today would be great. So this was the next day? Yeah. 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 They came and got her that night. You know, we had made arrangements and yeah. they came and got her that night from um, the funeral home. And, um, and, and I just said, no, I think I need this to go. And so the next day, and I, and so the day of her funeral, like on, she died on a Monday and on Thursday was her, her memorial service. And I remember going back into her room and it was just empty, hmm. you know, and thinking, oh gosh, maybe this was the anxiety that, <laughs> that I had been warned about, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Cause you're just in there and there's like, well, now what do I do? Yeah. You know? I had already cleaned out closets. I had already cleaned out medical supplies. I'd donated stuff. I had had friends of hers come in and, you know, just, I mean, all that stuff. And I was like, okay, well, um, you know, that's done. Boy, you know, aren't I efficient? And you're still working at the church. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you took yeah. the next Sunday off. Yeah, to take, I took three months off. Yeah. I did. I took three months off. They were generous and gave me 12 Sundays um, off. And... Um, and that was weird too, because then it was like, well, crap, now what, what do I do? You, what do you do? Yeah, I can't work and I'm not really um, productive, you know? So I visited people and I, I had, you know, people come and take me to lunch about a million times and 
um, all of that. But a friend of mine who had lost her husband uh, at a young age told me, she said, um, the easy part is while everybody's still taking care of you. But in about six weeks, mm. people are going to go back to their lives because they have to and they do and they will. And then you're going to be alone. And then you're going to really feel the impact of what's happened to you. And that was true. That turned yeah. out to be true. Um, but the change of, you know, life began to already unfold because I was like in that 12 week window, I was like, well, what am I going to do? You know, um, I, I don't know. Um, I guess I'll go back to work. Um, haven't come into any big hard conclusions that would keep me from it. And, um, so I went back to work and Trish passed in May of 2013. And by February of 2014, Christ community had gone through a lot of leadership changes and things. And we'd lost a fair amount of people and, um, finances there were starting to sag. And, um, so they cut my job back to part-time and, and you've been there how many years? Um, at that time, I'd been there about 18. Wow. I'm like, well, what do you want me to do part of the time? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you want me to play half a song? Do you want <laughs> half a worship team? Do you want, you know, to be half as long? You know, I mean, I, I, was, I was a little annoyed, uh, to use that word. Um, <laughs> and uh, I thought... Um, yeah, I'm still kind of six months back in time here. I don't even, you know, so what I did was I went out to other churches and led worship on weekends and took teams out. And, um, I, I, I did every other Sunday, basically we kind of landed mm -hmm. on that and, and I did that for about a year and then we uh, got a new pastor and he came in and invited me to come back. And, um, I did, I came back on as a full-time, uh, staff member because I still hadn't really decided what I wanted to do, but I was spending a lot of time in recovery circles and doing a lot of recovery work with people. And, Which means uh, what, like 12-step Well, 12-step stuff, like... stuff um, groups, going out and speaking, um, speaking at churches about mm. um, how faith-based communities can uh, understand addiction, help people in better ways than just moralizing behavior and and then shaming them for it. Yeah. Um, you know, so I kind of took on this thing and I was becoming very passionate about it. And it was starting to take up more and more of my time, honestly. And uh, I was helping a church in Brentwood do a recovery worship service on Sunday nights. Huh. And it was like a recovery-based worship service. Wow. And we'd have a, a speaker who would just be somebody who would share their story. You know, not really a message or a sermon or anything, but we just have somebody share their story. That was really a rewarding time. It was a it was a great time of um, helping them build community uh, for something they wanted to do, and and so I was finding ways, or these ways were finding me. I should say, um, I'd had an opportunity to write a book, and uh, had that published a. a book of uh, Our Authentic Selves, Reflections on What We Believe and What We Wish We Believed. Mm. <laughs> and I was, because I came to the conclusion, a lot of things I thought I believed were just things I wish I believed. Yeah. And um, so I wrote this 40-day reflections journal, short entries that were about 500 words each and meant to be kind of a recovery 
I hate to use the word devotional because that's like killing it. The, buzz, the buzzword, <laughs> the, the yeah, trigger. Yeah, it is because people go, oh, well, I'm not getting that, you know. Um, but it was, a, I call it a reflections journal. So that was a, a lot more <laughs> acceptable to me. But <laughs> uh, And the publisher liked that word. But um, I wrote that in that, in that period of time. Mm-hmm. And um, as we kind of morphed into me coming back to Christ's community, I... Um, I found this program that um, would offer you certification in addiction recovery work that would allow you to go into private practice Mm. and work with people with either substance abuse, compulsive behavioral issues, and be a part of a a practice of people. And so I began to pursue that. And in the process of that, Christ's community and I began to, I think, agree that I needed to be somewhere else and doing something in a different capacity. And I think they had ideas for what they wanted their their worship to look like from there as well. And and that was a big change for me because I wanted to change and I was very afraid of it, honestly, reluctant about it. That was um, like the one thing that had kind of stayed the same probably, yeah, right? Yeah. And because when you're on staff at a church, when you when you step away, you really lose a lot of your community, even though these are always still your friends. And I left on good terms and no one was, you know, running me out with pitch, pitchforks and torches, you know, <laughs> but uh, you lose a lot of your community and you lose mm. your identity in a lot of ways. And, um, and the thing you thought you were all about suddenly isn't there anymore when you really finally stop doing that. And so when I left and I began to uh, work in private practice, um, I had an opportunity to join a group of therapists in Brentwood, which was a really good opportunity for me. And they were um, very positive and helpful and assuring me that I would have clients because I was like, you know, I can't afford rent in Maryland Farms. You know, you guys have clients. I have like two. (laughs) (laughs) This was how long ago? This was three years ago. Okay, three years ago. Yeah. So, uh, but you know what? It was really interesting because I was so afraid of that change and would not have orchestrated it that way for myself at all. I wanted all the barges to line up so that you could just step right onto one, mm-hmm. you know, from the other one instead of having to swim any distance in between them. Wow, you know, yeah, yeah. that's a good that's a good image. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's because that's what I felt like. I I was like, when the barges line up so that I can take one step, maybe I'll stretch a little bit, pull a hamstring. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to do that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I'm not willing to swim for a mile and a half and hope I don't drown to get to the other barge that I can only barely see from here. Yeah, that I'm pr- kind of think is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I'm told is out there somewhere. Who <laughs> <laughs> will pick me up if I wave my life preserver, oh, you know, man. vigorously over my head while I don't drown? Yeah. Um. So that's how it felt. It really did. I was scared, and I hmm. was because I just don't do big change real easily. And um, it has been the best thing in the world. It has been the best thing in the world because I see people every day. I average about five clients a day now. Mm. Um, I have another book that I was able to write that um, I was able to have published. I write and do blogs for addiction websites. Um, There's a company that bought five hours a week of my time to just blog and edit web 
articles for them. And that's been really a rewarding thing and a great learning experience. And you're able to stay up on a lot of research when you're reading articles about the latest thoughts on trauma and addiction and the body and the brain connections and all those kind of nerdy things that we all study when we do this stuff. But I love my clients. I love the people I get to work with. I It breaks my heart when people just disappear, mm. you know? It's one of the things that's hard to get used to is that nobody has to call and give you a breakup. You call, you they know. Just don't book another. <laughs> yeah, they don't show. really break up with you. They just stop coming, mm-hmm. and uh, and you don't know what's happened. They don't call you back. They don't, and you assume mm, things have gone off the rails again. And maybe in six months you hear from them again, and maybe you don't. Um, wow. And that's you know that's hard, but uh, that's sort of how I got you know, from way back to 87 to, you know, 2019. I mean, I I sold my house in Franklin um, about two and a half years ago and moved to a security building near downtown in Berry Hill, um, Hmm. which I like a lot. Um, I love living in the city and it's me and my great Pyrenees. (laughs) And uh, her job is just to love me and that's Hmm. it. That's the sole extent of her job description. And so uh, my daughter is married and um, her husband just got back from eight months in Poland. He's in the military, in the reserves. And uh, she had a baby while he was gone, which was, you know, an incredible thing on her part to be, you know, this single mom. And I was able to be around for that. And Mm. so our uh, little guy will turn one now in um, uh, September. So he's, uh, so he's a bright spot now. And Lauren and I have a wonderful relationship, which is a gift. Um, and I'm not trying to like, you know, put a big bow on the Hallmark story because you suddenly turn your broadcast into a Hallmark movie, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, there's still a lot of loose ends on, in my world, you know, um, a lot of loose ends, but, um, I attend St. Augustine's Episcopal Church up in Nashville and have a lot of great recovery friends there and am involved in that recovery work there as well. And so life just really looks very different to me now. That that point in time where you knew that something was going to change and needed to change and had to change and other people were thinking that on your behalf too. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh. you know, I mean, I know you've been down that road a little bit and, um, you know, that's, that's hard yeah. at the time, you know, uh, it is hard at the time. And so, uh, I want it to all be my idea on my terms, on my timetable. Yeah. You know? That's maybe one of the biggest things I've learned from having 60 conversations now where I just go, so tell me, is that almost nobody chooses the changes that happen in their lives like yeah we're mostly just reactive Mm -hmm. every now and then we get a little moment where we can be proactive but Mm -hmm. we're mostly going oh now i have to deal with this yeah now what yeah and it forces you to not just work really hard but it forces you to really think um you know what do you want you know, I grew up in a in a system where everybody talked about, you know, God's perfect will for your life. Like there was this um, one thing that God really wanted you to do. And if you missed that, you were kind of screwed, hmm. you know. 
and I was talking to my monk friend way, way back when I first, you know, uh, got sober. And I was talking about, you know, what if I'm missing God's perfect will? What if I'm, you know, and he said, have you ever thought about just the fact that maybe God just kind of sits back and goes, I don't know, David, what do you want to do? <laughs> you know, what are you passionate about? What would you like to do? What would you like to see yourself doing a year from now? Hmm. You know, oh, no, no, no. It's got to be, there's got to be, because if God had a perfect will and then it didn't come through, I'd have someone to blame. If I pursue my passions, huh. you know, then um, I can only blame me or life or whatever. But I got to have somebody out on the fringe here who's going to take the fall for this. Because um, I don't want to take the responsibility for my own life. That sounds, you know, like, I mean, who wants to do that? Hmm. <laughs> Man, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Whew. So can I ask, when you're, when you're now working with people in recovery mm-hmm. daily, in and out, five times a day, what does that look like? Is that talking? Is that like... Uh, like brain mapping and that kind of technological mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. what what is the job? Yeah, that's... Um, or maybe I should say, if someone's listening to this and they go, I think I probably need to talk to somebody like David, like, what do they expect? What are they looking for? Yeah, well, usually it's interesting because what people come to me thinking they're going to get or thinking they need is really not often what we actually end up doing. <laughs> um, people, I have an office and people come in and first of all, I end up, I largely work with people with substance use disorders. Um, but the families of people with substance issues or compulsive behavioral stuff, you know, a lot of sex addiction or whatever, what we call process addictions or behaviors, but I end up working with treatment centers in an extended care program. Once people leave treatment, they they need to see somebody once or twice a week, and I have referrals built in with some treatment centers that I work with. Um, But a lot of people just come to me kind of cold call. I have uh, nonprofits that help cover some of the care that people get from me. Like if you're a musician out there or work in any capacity in entertainment, a bus driver, a roadie, I mean anything, you can call Music Cares, which is the nonprofit arm of the Grammy Association, and ask for a grant for some help. Mm. And um, and you apply, and there's some criteria, but they are very generous with their resources and pay for a period of time. Wow. So um, the, uh, but the thing is, is that it will look like coming in and talking to me for an hour. I'm telling me their story. But what's interesting is my question is why the pain, not why the behavior? Hmm. Because we know, I mean, I know what it feels like to drink. I know what it feels like to use a substance. I know what it feels like to numb out and escape in any number of ways. What I don't know is why you feel like it's not okay to be you and when it stopped being okay to be you. Hmm. And when you and had to... is that what we do when we go to those behaviors? Mm-hmm. Is that we stop? Yeah, mostly it's just to not feel. You know, life is... There's, there's a really, really strong correlation between trauma and what we would call addiction. And addiction is kind of on a continuum. It's not quite as black and white as we all like to, 
you know, think you're either an addict or you're not. I mean, mm. there is sort of that line, but it's a little bit more of a continuum there than, than that. But we know that trauma, shame, anxiety, and lack of connection are like the four-legged stool that supports addictive or compulsive behavior. And when we've got those things going, and, and trauma, you know, that sounds like a dramatic word to people, and it is, uh, but what we, we you don't have to have, you know, run through a minefield in Kuwait to have trauma. You know, you can have trauma anywhere where you've had pain, a painful episode without an empathetic witness. So mm. really anywhere where you were alone in your pain, um, alone in your episode is traumatic. We can, we can experience a lot of trauma uh, more than we think and hold it. Uh, for a lot longer than we think. And and mm. that trauma causes our brains to go to that fight, flight, or freeze place. And, and, and we learn to calm that down with a substance or a behavior. And eventually, if we do that behavior enough with enough regularity, when we experience this feeling, this emotion, this trigger, the brain begins to depend on me to provide the substance it needs to give me the dopamine I need for pleasure and to calm me down. Hmm. Um, eventually, the brain starts asking for it even when you don't experience a trigger or a, uh, you know, a painful episode. I always tell people it's kind of like you know the amygdala in the brain does its job when you're in the woods and you see a bear, and it's kind of like, there's a bear, I should mm -hmm. run. And, and you should listen to the amygdala. It's saving your life, you know? Mm -hmm. But what happens in addiction and in anxiety and disordered behavior that like that is that the amygdala begins to regularly anticipate that there's a bear when there's not. But you medicate yourself as if there is. And so that's the beginning, if not the in, you know, the on-ramp into addiction. Hmm. Because your brain is depending on you now to give it what it needs so that that dopamine, so that, that those other chemicals will be your source of sanity and calm and things that you believe will. So then you're training people, I assume you're training people then to handle that differently? Is yeah. that kind of the, the end goal is to not need the dopamine or what is that? Well, the dopamine is your reward system. And we all, you know, we all need the reward system. I and mean, when we eat chocolate cake, we get dopamine, you know. And I tell people, you know, because disordered behavior can show up in a lot of ways, your brain doesn't care if it's a shot of whiskey, an orgasm, or a chocolate cake. You know, mm. whatever you give it regularly in order to medicate yourself, it will be what it begins to know to ask for. Mm. And I mean, that's not a that's not a clear definition of an eating disorder or something. But um, but the way yeah. you you know the we way you that. medicate, yeah, yeah. Um, and so what you have to do is begin to realize why I'm doing what I'm doing, um, and begin to change some of those some of those behaviors about why I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing. You need connection. You need other people. Um, you need a multi-pronged approach. I mean, we have a neurofeedback clinic in our office where they do actually do brain mapping. And I'm not the person with all those credentials to do that, but I work with a therapist who is. And they can tell me this person is highly anxious. We can see on the brain that the back of the brain is very engaged, which mm. is you know, trauma, anxiety, 
fear, um, all that. And the front of your brain, prefrontal cortex, where your personality, creativity, uh, your executive functions are, is usually minimally active when the back of the brain is highly active. Mm. So one of the things we ask people to do is find creative pursuits that involve other people and engage in them. And that's why treatment centers now are starting to use songwriting and music and art and a lot of um, creative mindfulness kind of exercises mm. because it reengages the front of your brain and you get connection and you get in touch with who you really are again. And that begins to minimize the cravings and the impulses and all of that. And, you know, recovery is not a perfect drop of the needle and, you know, I'm suddenly I'm not drinking anymore. Yeah. Um, most people relapse several times before there's a long-term sobriety. Mm. But yeah, it's a it's it's a retraining. It's helping families understand uh, what they're in for. What does it look like to love this person when they are still going to act imperfectly? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because mm -hmm. um, well, you know, he goes day A and he comes and sees you, and he goes and meets his sober buddies, and he's still, you know, after three weeks, he still went out and drank again. And I went, yeah, that's, you know, that happens. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's a bad answer. Um, but we got to know what did he believe that night that he did that? What did mm. he feel? What did he experience? What were the triggers? Um, and, and sometimes people are in situations that have to change, like, uh, unfortunately, marriages and jobs. And, you know, can you stay in this job and stay sober? Can you stay in this marriage and stay sober? Can you, uh, because the spouse wants you to get well, but they don't know necessarily that they have a role in this as well that they play. And that's usually a big news flash, And that's usually where people start jumping off the boat mm. um, <laughs> because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to get him fixed. I'm not here to hear you tell me how my crap plays into his crap, mm. you know, because it sounds like you're giving him a pass for drinking because of me. And that's not what we're saying at all. We're saying, what is it in your relationship that might be enabling him to continue in this behavior that you're not aware of? Um, but that's a hard conversation, man, you know, so are you enjoying doing this work? I am. It's challenging. It's, um, at times maddening. Um, but it's extremely rewarding when somebody says, wow, it's been a year and I haven't had a drink or I haven't acted out. I haven't had to go to other behaviors because I finally think I know myself, hmm. you know, I finally have a self. Yeah. It, it, yeah. But you're you're kind of at times a little bit on call more than a counselor would be. You you get the phone call at 1030 at night that, you know, somebody hasn't come home or mm. that um, they are drinking or that there's chaos. And sometimes uh, you can put that off till tomorrow. And sometimes you may make a trip across town. And that's that's just part of it. But it is mm. rewarding and it is where I feel like I am supposed to be right now. Yeah, for that's sure. Awesome. You know. That's awesome. Well if somebody is listening, they wanna they wanna get connected to something like this. If if they live in Nashville or if they don't, what where where do they go to look for this? Well, you know, there's a number of ways to get help. If they want to reach me, I have a website um called David Hampton C P R C those are just my certified professional recovery coach credentials, but davidhamptoncprc.com, and it will tell you what I do, what I'm about, 
um, how to get in touch with me. There's a little form on there you can fill out and email me directly, and I'll get right in touch with you. We can make an appointment. There are certainly meetings, recovery meetings, all over Nashville. Nashville's a great recovery town. If you'd like um, or believe you need treatment, maybe inpatient, or you need help deciding if you need to go to a residential program or if an outpatient program might be good, I can help you make that assessment and make some recommendations. Um, and there are a number of great uh, recovery counselors that you can most of the time Google addiction recovery uh, counselors, licensed alcohol and drug abuse counselors. The um, the biggest thing is just to get to a place where you can tell yourself the truth so that you can tell one person the truth. And usually after you tell one person the truth, it gets a little bit easier to mm. have a second person or mm. to listen to the advice of the one person and let them guide you to someone because, uh, you know, if you have a family member, the same way. I mean, you need to be able to say, because family members suffer differently. You know, they have kind of these don't talk, don't trust, don't feel rules when they have a alcoholic or an addict in the house. They don't trust telling people that they're going through this. Uh, they don't really know how to feel, so they just don't. They just shut down. And they, and they certainly, they don't, they don't want to talk about it outside of the family. They feel disloyal, you know, to others. Um, so it's it's the same thing. Tell someone, this is what we're going through. Um, the power's in the secrecy, you know. But it's about why the pain, not why the behavior. Mm. So, Man, that's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. And just oh, thank you for having me. All this. What a, what a treat. Well, Andy, it's good to be with you. Thank you. Thanks, David. Whew, that was a good one. Thank you, David. Again, if you want to find out more about David and his work, you can find him at davidhamptoncprc.com. And you can hear his podcast wherever you're listening to this one. It's called Positive Sobriety, and it's great. And thank you for listening to this podcast. We currently have a 4.9 rating out of 5 over on iTunes, and that is fantastic. And it really helps other people to find the show. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to help out, there are a couple things you can do that are so easy. One of them is go on iTunes and leave us a nice review, or you can share a post on social media about something that was said that impacted you or uh, just an episode you want to share with your friends. That would be so helpful. Thank you, guys. And of course, the way better thing you can do today is to go to Compassion.com slash The Pivot and sponsor a child. You, you, the person driving or power walking or mowing your lawn, whatever you're doing, you can change a child's life today by freeing them from poverty in Jesus' name. Please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot and sponsor a child today. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you've got any thoughts to share, I would love to hear them. You can reach me at andrew at everybodypivots.com. Please know that I do get all of those emails, and I am absolutely horrible at responding. Uh, but they mean a lot, and I do my best. Uh, for more info on me and my music, you can go to andrewosenga.com or everybodypivots.com. We'll be back next week with another incredible, and I think incredibly useful, interview. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week. And now, go do something awesome, like sponsor a child through compassion. Mm-hmm.